This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. One aspect of a conversation that we're all three of us are very deeply steeped in, um, this aspect of this conversation, uh, called gender, um, can, can be, can appear in the corner of, of other aspects of the gender conversation. And it's just how young women are coming of age right now mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and how even over time, um, you know, with what used to be called hysteria or other kind of mass panics, mm-hmm. women specifically young women for one reason or another can in mass get swept up and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. different, I don't know, mental health issues is the term we kind of use right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so since you're both women and I am not, mm-hmm. I, I'm wondering about that aspect of that and, and what, what's missing maybe in America mm-hmm. or in, in, Are you sure you're not a woman. <laughs> well, if we could define a woman, if I may be so bold, I could say not what I am. Okay. I can, I can define a woman by what I am not. Um, but there is some ambiguity on there. I haven't fully come out as a man um, explicitly. <laughs> I haven't declared it or anything. I had a binge reveal party. Um, that'll come later when I have a mental health issue and run out onto the street and then everybody will know for sure. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, I think we've, I think it's not kind of new news that, uh, you know, women in general, and perhaps young women in particular, are more susceptible to certain mental health struggles. And there are probably super complicated reasons around that, including just kind of cultural norms and expectations. Mm-hmm. You know, which is not to say that men don't struggle. They do. Um, their struggles often look a little different. And again, some of that is undoubtedly sort of socialization and culture. Maybe not all of it. Yeah. But um, but yes, young young women seem to be particularly susceptible. And and I think you know, I mean, Eliza, I'd love to hear you know your thinking on this. But but I know you know part of the reason that people speculate some of the speculation about why this is is because. Um, you know, adolescent girls, for example, are very peer focused. They're very socially focused, which is, you know, this sort of normative developmental thing. So you're very porous to your, your friends. And so, uh, there can co-rumination and, uh, and, and a certain, you know, and feelings are sort of contagious, you know, I mean, you, you, we know this and, and we see this so that, you know, 
depression, anxiety, um, eating disorders, all kinds of things can kind of spread in peer groups. And also things like, I mean, laughing, contagious laughing fits and like fainting spells that like, you know, all over the world, we've had these kind of things sweep through girls' mm -hmm. schools, girls' friend groups. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Are there any memories of uh, contagious emotions for you two? I can, I can very much remember that. I mean, just as a general phenomenon, I'm trying to think about uh, sort of... Um, I mean, <laughs> what comes back to me, I guess this is not a bad thing, of my own adolescence is um, being very swept up in, in love of certain music with friends. Mm -hmm. You know, so we, would, we were like obsessed with certain bands. Which band? And, White Snake? <laughs> oh, come, come on, man. This is really going <laughs> to date me. We were like, it was like The Clash and The Jam and The Cure and The Police and, you know, all that great mid-80s stuff. But we, you know, that was like, uh, we just, we were so kind of hyper fixated on it at times. And it just had this incredible froth to it. You know, like, we're going to go to the concert. You're going to get the new album. And so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I'm trying to think about contagions that I remember from being an adolescent. Um, I feel like by the time I was an adolescent, which was in, you know, the 2000s, that some of that like musical subculture had fallen away like that, that mm -hmm. and that I think that that might be part of the problem is that instead of having a really strong identification with music and the really strong feelings flowing toward music, they're flowing toward other things. And this is something that like Adsek Kim has mm -hmm. said before, yep. yeah. it was like, you know, we would have just been like, that's true. Goths or punks or... Point. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, the things that I remember being contagious from my adolescence were like, yeah, it was, it was kind of like, there was a lot of like cutting and different ways of like self-harm that would kind of spread mm -hmm. through the population. Mm -hmm. um, and bulimia was also really big. I was yeah. kind of like the odd woman out because I kind of like, I don't think that there were any other anorexics, <laughs> mm -hmm, <laughs> and, mm -hmm. but like, it was definitely, there would be teachers in the bathroom during lunch, like listening for girls growing up. Wow. Yeah. And then it just became, I don't know, there was a certain, this has become more relevant to me, you know, much more recently, like remembering back, um, that some girls would demonstrate like demonstrating a certain kind of like extreme sensitivity as a way to get attention. Yeah. yeah. So yep. like I was in, I was in theater and there were girls <laughs> who, you know, they would like be like extremely claustrophobic when like the theater curtains were down or just all kinds of little points of distinction that were kind of based in pathology or needing care or needing Right. Yeah. It is. I mean, I, you think about this, I mean, you sort of think about like that, let's call it like that. 
I don't want to use a, too, a word that's too freighted, but like the, if you think about sort of like the victim position, right. Mm-hmm. And you think about like, why, why do we have that as, as humans? Like, how did that evolve? And I don't, I don't, I mean, again, I'm not trying to use a freighted word, so maybe I could think of something different, but there, there is an, a, a sort of an adaptive advantage to being able to signal a need for care. Mm-hmm. And, and we, we all have a sort of, we're sort of wired to attend to people who need care. And, and so you, you can see how sometimes that that is exactly the right, um, the most adaptive place to be is I, you know, signaling I need care, but that can also get sort of become hypertrophied if, if that's sort of the only tool in our toolbox. Yes. That that's the only thing that we know how to do. But I think your point about the curtains, I can totally see that, right? And I've no, I've, you know, I think we all know that that person who um, has a very visible, dramatic reaction to something, and and you just sort of know in your bones part of what's going on is a kind of attention seeking. Not that mm-hmm. it's a, con- not that it's conscious. I mean, the person yeah. really believes. I'm going to say her own story. Yeah. Um, and and really is feeling that distress, but you can kind of imagine that the person is sending up a big flare, like I need attention, I need care. And sometimes receiving that care helps, but sometimes it just becomes a uh, a cycle where the person keeps on needing to kind of up the ante. Yeah, it just becomes this like worn track where it's like, that's the thing that you do and that's the person that you are. And I think something that I think about a lot when I'm thinking about like what's going on with girls and like I do research on internet communities across a couple of different issues that concern girls and young women. Something that comes up all the time is this expression of like, okay, I'm afraid that I'm faking it or I'm afraid that people think that I'm faking it. Mm -hmm. And it just seems like we don't have a good language for kind of psychosomatic expressions of distress because it's not like, it's not the same thing as faking it. And it's not the same thing as it being like the real, the mm-hmm. same, like a real thing in the no, sense of like, you're not exactly really right. paralyzed mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or you're not really. Yeah. And so we need a better language to take those kind of experiences seriously. Yeah. I think that's really, really well said. I really um, sort of want to like pause there because you're, it's not, it's actually kind of the wrong question. Like, am I really trans or am I really paralyzed? You know, it's like, it's more like, um, because first of all, in in some sense, you know, these are, these are not questions that can be answered in a way. Mm -hmm. Um, Not, not in the sense that the questioner really needs them answered. But it also um, sort of skips over it, it, it leaves something completely unaddressed, which is like this area of yes, yes, the distress is real. Yeah, it's sort of like, that's the most important thing is yeah, the distress is the distress is real. Yeah. Um, and then but then how do we how do we make space to hold that? I mean, I, I, I always say something like, um, uh, um, you know, someone comes into the office and they've got this um, this concern, uh, you know, and they're and they're really it's really overblown. Maybe they have like a crush on a guy in the office who's married mm-hmm. and they're married and they're just completely um, overwhelmed by this and they feel a great deal of distress and 
you know, they'll, they'll say, well, you know, you know, what does this mean? And are these feelings real or whatever? And, and what I'll say is, I say, I'll say, well, here's what I know. I know they're important. Yeah. And I, and I think that a lot of times these kind of idioms of distress um, are a way of trying to say, I've got something going on and it's really important and I need you to take me seriously. Mm-hmm. And then the kinds of the forms that that takes will depend on the time and the place and like what is considered to be a serious presentation. Mm-hmm. What is right. like culturally legible. Yeah. But that, yeah, yeah. Sorry, go ahead, please. Yeah, no, I was just going to say, and that's Edward Shorter's whole yeah. discussion around the symptom pool, which I think is really quite brilliant. Yeah, it's a great metaphor. Um, but just for people who aren't familiar with it, um, the symptom pool being basically stocked with, how would you say this? Like it's stocked with symptoms and a patient will unconscious who is experiencing distress will unconsciously kind of pull from whatever the symptom pool is in that time and place. Mm-hmm. And that's what they will probably present with when they go to seek help or what they'll talk about when they go talk to a friend. Yeah, because because you, you want to find a symptom, I mean, unconsciously, right? You you yeah. want to find a symptom that um that other people will respond to and take seriously. Yeah. And so it needs to be sort of in the culture. So it's this really interesting kind of unconscious um, negotiation with the culture and with, you know, healthcare providers to kind of find the thing that will be responded to. And so, you know, when we talk about sort of what's wrong, what's wrong with girls or what's wrong with young women, Mm -hmm. I think, I think a lot of it is, um, you know, it's so hard. There is real distress. There is real distress. And the, the, the things that we are offering people, and I would, I would say it's not just young women, the things we are offering people, maybe I would say even young people in the culture mm-hmm. tend to be not that helpful. You know, I mean, for example, I, I even have a, th- I, I sort of, um, you know, everyone has depression and anxiety. Mm-hmm. everyone has depression and anxiety. Everyone always talks about their depression and their anxiety. And, you know, I get it. The suffering is real. The pain is real. But is it helpful to say, I have depression and anxiety? Mm-hmm. I mean, when someone comes into my office and says, I'm, I have depression and anxiety, I, I say, well, what does that mean? Like, what's your yeah. experience of that? Yeah, there's like a reification of like distress as a disorder that becomes a part of you. And what what I hear a lot online is, you know, people will really take, young people will really take ownership of it and be like, you know, my anxiety, my autism, my ADHD, my, you know, they make this this part of themselves. And, you know, I think that part of this is just the way that the internet works. Like you find like-minded people who have the interest in the same topic. And so kind of out of necessity like that the basis on which you're connecting becomes a form of identification mm-hmm. but yeah. i just find that that really interesting and that the when you're talking about a lot of what we're offering young people are in the situation like doesn't work um one of the kind of common trends looking across a bunch of different internet communities and like that would be like trans and certain like neurodiverse 
autism communities with like very high functioning people and certain chronic illness or like spoony communities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're feeding the cycle, like you mentioned, of like kind of negative co-rumination. Yes. The girls in particular are so good at. Yes. And it's like your membership in the group is contingent or your member, your you know validity as a member of the group is contingent on continuing to suffer in this way mm-hmm. and maybe even continuing to suffer more and more and more so that you're a more legitimate member of the group. Mm. They seem to feed these cycles of pathology. What's a spoonie? Um, so it's, it's like a term of identification for people who are part, for some people who are part of like a kind of a chronic illness community online. The idea it's from this viral essay about how, like kind of how many spoons do you have every day? And like, maybe a normal person has a ton of spoons and Brushing your teeth doesn't even take a spoon. Right, to use. Okay. Yeah. And if you have a chronic illness, maybe you only have like five spoons and three of them get used up taking a shower. So it's a way to try to communicate yeah. um, the experience of limitation. Yeah. 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 You know, I want to just go back for a second, Eliza, mm. to something you said a minute ago, because I, I think that this is like a piece of it. Like, obviously, the phenomena that we're talking about are just sort of generalizable to humans and we can point back to examples of this even from centuries ago so this is nothing mm-hmm. new but but you said something you said you know sort of the way the internet works is that um, for example if you have a chronic illness and you connect with other people online who have that same chronic illness um, it allows because of that because of the internet and because it allows us to find each other with our very particular interests. Yeah. I mean, the three of us being an example of that, you yeah. know, there's this kind of magnifier effect um, where, where so, so this thing that would ordinarily happen more slowly, or you'd be forced to kind of integrate other perspectives or other people um, with the internet, you can just kind of with laser-like focus, find just those people that have the same viewpoints, that have the same Mm -hmm. um, troubles that you do. And then you can just spend pretty much all of your time ruminating with those people. Yes. I mean, that's that's a whole interesting thing, right? Like the internet and rumination, that, that, that is like a whole thing. It's like the perfect tool. Yeah, it's like the perfect tool for rumination. You, you know, you can just kind of do endless Google searches for like that thing that you think you want to buy <laughs> yeah. and sort of ruminate about it, you know. Or go down um, a WebMD terror hole. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, several things that are so weird about the internet. The one is like, okay, maybe in the past, like you would have been. I don't know. On the internet, you can take all of these things that you would like have never said out loud to anybody in your life or would never have asked anybody in your life or you never would have known who to ask. And that can take you all these kinds of different places because you're kind of like, there's an encouragement to kind of dredge the silty bottom of like your experience. Oh, I love Um, that. and, And I also like what you're talking about, being able to be part of a community where the thing that you share is this problem and the thing that you're doing is you're co-ruminating mm-hmm. about it it's like if you have a relationship in real life it's 
very likely that that relationship will have many dimensions, including like a physical dimension, which is you yes. know very specific, very um, important. But like it'll also be maybe you met at a coffee store and you like coffee, or you you know you will right. just do more things rather than like be on like be talking about one subject all the time. Like it would be very weird in real life mm -hmm. if you and your friend only talked about one thing and only did it while sitting in one place and not looking at each other, you know, it just doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. Yep. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Lisa, what percentage of your clients are kind of the younger, like teens or that... that I, Do you have a lot of interaction um, with those no, folk? No, I, I, work, I work with adults. I do work with a number of young adults. And, and then I work with uh, a lot of parents of teens. Mm -hmm. I'm just wondering if, you, uh, if you've read or studied or experienced firsthand how this social milieu of the internet is shaping the psychology of the people who have only known social socialization mm -hmm. through the internet mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. yeah i mean i have a few people that i see who are young adults who really grew up online and i think that um you know individuals can uh have different experiences with that like some people who are let's say 24 you know always used the internet but they also had tons of you know in real life friends and um, you know, had a kind of variety of experiences versus there are a couple of people that I'm working with who are actually detransitioners who really lived their lives online. And, and mm -hmm. they're that there's a, I, I want to say that the, I don't want to, you know, there's a way that that really shapes your experience of the world in a way that leaves it fairly impoverished, you know, that you you i'm thinking of of these young people they're not used to socializing in person mm -hmm. um they might live in a big city but not really not see other people and that feels kind of normal to them so they still do most of their socializing on online but you know it's it, it like i think i think so you know when we know this from covid right socializing online is probably better than not socializing but it's not the same thing as being in person and and so you know some of these young women they're they're really struggling and i kind of keep on saying like who, who have you who have you seen this week it's like oh, mm -hmm. i haven't i haven't left the apartment you know and this person and i are meeting online and it's like well you know um gee <laughs> you know that that you know the the psychoanalyst karen Moroda has this phrase that i really appreciate she uses this phrase social deprivation 
And she makes the point that when you are socially deprived, everything is harder. Mm-hmm. And and if you're if you are experiencing social deprivation and you change that and you make some friends and you see people regularly, like not my friend and I have coffee once a month, but like you're seeing people multiple times per week, the same people in at least a few cases. Mm-hmm. Um then then you know your ocd gets a little better your your eating disorder doesn't act up quite as much you're not quite as anxious you're not quite as depressed your things don't quite look so look quite so bleak so um but but for these kids that really live their lives online this is what they know and in some cases they don't feel super comfortable socializing in person yeah so i don't know eliza what you know what you're saying um, I think I'm kind of on in that generation where I grew up half online and half not online. Like we had the internet in my house from when I was probably eight or nine, mm-hmm. but it was dial up. Um, <laughs> and, and you know, it was your that, only that's phone about line. the age I was when we got color TV, Liza. So. <laughs> oh, <Yeah>. geez. <laughs> well, it was dial up and you know, your parents need the phone line and you only have so much, like yeah, I yeah. think it was maybe like 15 hours a week or something. Um, so, <laughs> Like, I had the experience of being on forums and having these very different kinds of relationships. And then I had an experience of, you know, being kind of in the real world, but kind of socially isolated. Mm -hmm. Um, Which is just very different from not being in the real world and being socially isolated. Like, Mm -hmm. in some ways, maybe it hurts more to be around people and to be isolated, but you know what's wrong. (laughs) Yeah. Like, as opposed to you don't know what's wrong. yeah and i something that comes up a lot in my research is young people who have invested a ton in an identity that has been you know built on the internet Mm -hmm. they will talk about the difficulty that they have every time they try to take that identity out into the the Mm. quote-unquote real world and and they'll come back to these forums and they'll express this great confusion of like, you know, I, I don't understand why I feel so weird when I ask people to, you know, refer to me as like he, him, and to call me by this new name in the real world. Because online, I feel great when people refer to me this way. And I feel great when people see me this way. And I feel great when I play a video game with like a male avatar. And it's just, they're like, it just doesn't make sense. Hmm. And I do find that to be really interesting. Like, identity just exists in this totally different way on the internet where it's like, okay, you're in charge of the information that you share. You have this unprecedented level of control of information that determines what other people see and what they're responding to. That's really interesting. And the real world just isn't like that. And the things that you can self-determine on the internet do feel like an imposition in real life if they are in conflict with, you know, what other people are seeing. Wow. That's, yeah, that, that's just, that's really that just made a big penny drop for me because you know identity is socially negotiated mm-hmm. right i mean i it's so funny because i don't think of myself as old you know mm-hmm. but um like when I'm, when I'm on public transportation people like give up their seat to me and i'm like what the hell are you doing you know you are not I, in the give up the seat age range no but i mean like that's I mean, crazy i know here but here's here's what i i think what it is is that my hair signals age right because i don't dye my hair obviously so you know i have 
pretty much white hair. It used to be salt and pepper, but now it is decidedly more salt than pepper. And people see that and it, it signals, oh, she's old, you know, and they're being kind, but it floors me every time it happens. Yeah, I um, imagine. But, uh, but, but, but that's, but I can't, I can't, you know, my, my hair signals what it signals, you know, and I, I mean, sort of dying it, there's, there's not much I can do about that. So we're all out in the world, you know, socially negotiating our identity, responding in part, in part projecting how we want to be seen. So we pick Mm -hmm. our clothing, we pick our hairstyle, we, to a certain extent, we present our how we are with body language and how we move. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, is obviously mostly unconscious. Um, But, but then we also have to respond to deal with the responses that come back. So I'm yeah. going, I'm going around thinking, oh yeah, I'm, you know, I'm, I don't know. I sort of, I probably feel like I'm in my thirties or forties or something, but people mm-hmm. respond to me like I'm a little old lady and I have You're to take chronologically that. To, dysphoric. And that's right. <laughs> and I, I have to sort of take that on board. So, Eliza, what you're lifting up is really fascinating to me. We don't have to negotiate our identity online. We can just mm-hmm. simply create it. Yeah. And we don't, we don't, uh, we, we don't, we don't have this awkward thing, like someone seeing something about us that we don't want them to see. Yeah. And I think if we can loop back to talking about like what's maybe going on with girls and why that kind of transition of adolescence is so hard. Like, I think that that is a huge piece of it. Like some of it is this conti- the contagious emotions that girls can spread to an- one another. But I think a big thing, and I certainly like, I know in my own case, a big thing was maybe you still feel like a child and all of a sudden the people around you are seeing something else and they're reacting to that. And it's very disturbing when you are 13. Yes. And you want to, I mean, I think anorexia, I think gender identity, all of these things can be a way to control the, an attempt to control the way that other people see you. Like, okay, don't see me like that. Don't see me as this like sexual object. Like I'm going to take everything away that would give you that impression. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think you're absolutely right about that. And uh, it it is really jarring, you know, just like it's jarring for me to have someone give up their seat. You know, it's, it's much, it's jarring in a much worse way to suddenly find yourself ogled. Yeah when you're 13 or 14 and you just, you, that's not even where you are at all. That's not how you see yourself. That's not what you're trying to project, but you're, it's thrust upon you. Just like little old ladies being thrust upon me. Yeah. Yeah. And if you're online a lot, then you're probably aware of internet porn. So there's an awareness of people looking at you like that. Not just you're a female body that's, you know, Remove from yeah. porn. When you have porn in your head already as a young girl, then and you get that attention, then you think that automatically. And probably that's in the mix as well. Yeah, I think that makes it feel even more like degrading, given how degrading most mm. pornography seems to be. Um, mm. yeah, yeah, but there's also, if you're online a lot, you're hearing a lot about... Um, you know, sort of sex positivity and mm-hmm. sex work is work and, you know, OnlyFans is empowering. And, you know, I mean, I suppose it could be, right? I don't want to be categorical, yeah. but I, I certainly don't think it is for everyone. And uh, um, mm. so you're not even allowed to not like the porn. 
Yeah. You're not even allowed to say, I don't want to do that. I wouldn't want to sexualize myself like that because somehow yeah. then you're sort of, um, I don't know what you're sort of, you know, you know, uh, you're kink shaming or sorry, you're, yeah. you're not sex positive or something. Yeah. If you borrow from Planned Parenthood, you're yucking somebody else's young, which is just about That's... the grossest way to say that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, like the only way that you can say no within that kind of like framework of sex positivity is to adopt an idiosyncratic like sexual or gender identity like these 13 year olds who like these 11 or 12 year olds who say that they're asexual and it's like your child yeah mm -hmm. yeah you haven't you know you haven't gone through puberty but yeah. if you're having this kind of like adult sexuality pushed on you and it's gross or weird or scary like i totally get how kids would you know that's the way to say that's not for me like it doesn't appeal to me. You do you, but I'm demisexual or asexual, which <laughs> in that system, in that gender sexuality system, gives them an out, yeah. gives them a place to kind of be connected to the ideology. Right, because then it's then, not, I'm a bad person because I'm a prude or I'm a kink shamer or I'm a whatever. It's like, I'm a person who has like these particular needs that I'm allowed to assert only in this framework. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But like demisexuality is just female sexuality. <laughs> which is uh, you're only attracted to somebody that you're, you know, you like. for certain. Yeah. That, that you, you like, like, that you know a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> Crazy idea. Uh, uh, with your moomin mug. Um, I'm thinking like when, when, when a certain contagion, a socially accepted contagion or a socially accepted illusion that facilitates the articulation of distress collapses because it is an illusion. Let's just say somebody erects this entire illusion around identity, like let's just mm -hmm. say gender identity, and it keeps on butting up against reality. And then eventually mm -hmm. enough people kind of flee from that and it collapses in on itself because it's socially constructed. It's it, it doesn't exist or it keeps on meeting up in the real world on individual people's experience. And then they just get exhausted from it and it lose. It's like a cult that just kind of loses belief. Um, I'm just, I'm, I'm kind of imagining that, that with the internet and these young girls, unless we're, unless society develops tools for them to mm -hmm. regulate like a, like some sort of language and some sort of connection that regulates this kind of out of control spiraling. And it's not just girls, it's boys too, through the internet without that interaction with reality. Won't, won't just another illusion pop up, just another tower of Babel, like kind of like weird ants that kind of like get the wrong program. Like it'll, they'll just make these, you know, these towers that don't make any sense, that don't serve any purpose. Um, uh, well, that's a very big and important question. And I think Eliza's research is really important in that regard, actually, because I think she's sort of peeling back these layers and kind of showing the mechanisms of how these mm -hmm. things happen. And Eliza, I'm really hoping that uh, you will produce many wonderful books about this that we can all read in Let's the see. future. Um, and I and I, I I'm sure that you have a lot to say, but but Benjamin, I'll sort of take a first crack at your um, important question with maybe a little bit of a long answer. So um, Eliza, you'd said this great thing before about how it's kind of this false dichotomy of am I am I really mm -hmm. trans? Am I really paralyzed or am I not? And we're sort of talking about the, the the sort of the middle of that being like, well, there's real distress there. And and I would also say. 
you know, coming at it from a sort of uh, the standpoint of analytical psychology is that the other reality there is that symptoms are always symbolic. Mm -hmm. So if you think about it, you know, the psyche, the distressed psyche is looking for something from the symptom pool, but the distressed psyche is also looking for some way to communicate distress that speaks to, um, to what's happening in the inner world. And that's going to be delivered in a symbolic language. So we have to be willing to entertain these things with a symbolic mindset. And that's not to say it's just symbolic. That's not it. Mm -hmm. It's not to say it's not real. It's to say it's important and let's figure out what the psyche is trying to say. So coming back to your question, I feel very strongly that my field, the mental health field, has really played a very uh, shameful role in many of these, I think we could call them psychiatric fads. You know, for example, um, multiple personality disorder, false memory syndrome, which were kind of related, right? And and so I, I've been thinking about that. Why? And and Benjamin, I think we've talked a little bit about this on your show before. But like, why is the mental health field so susceptible to psychiatric fads? And I think it's because most of most psychiatric symptoms are subjective by patient report or maybe, you know, observed, but they, they can't, you know, you can't give someone a blood test and find out if they're depressed. Yeah. You can't, um, you know, do an X, you know, some kind of, uh, you know, um, scan and find out if someone uh, is suffering from anxiety. So it's, 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 um, it's our subjective reality. And if we lose a symbolic perspective we're going to be tricked into thinking about these things in very concrete terms in very concrete, literal terms. And then we're off to the races. And of course, there's all kinds of things that have fed into this, like the, the medical model, not that I think that that's mm -hmm. all wrong. You know, there, there is, there's something important about medications, but believing that feeling depressed is the same thing as having diabetes, for example, and you just have to take a medication to fix it. It encourages us to think about our psychological distress in these concrete terms. And again, it eclipses the symbolic element that would allow us to engage the distress and find out what mm -hmm. we might need to learn from it. So, um, yeah, I guess I'll leave it there. Mm. I could probably go rambling on for a Oof. bit, but I'm here. Follow-up question, just to, what do you mean by symbolic as opposed to, how does one enter into a symbolic relationship with a sim, mm -hmm. uh, symptom? Mm -hmm. right? there, it's, mm -hmm. it's other than taking it literal, it's other than, I guess, putting it into a flow chart to find an answer directly. Yeah. There's, uh, there's a different relationship and, and ling even a linguistic approach or rational or mental approach to engaging with the symptom, this distress, this feeling, and and just to, like how 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 does that sim what what do you mean mm -hmm. what 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 does symbolism symbolize like mm -hmm. what do you mean mm -hmm. by mm -hmm. that? Well, um, just just I mean I kind of gave this little um, made up example before. If someone comes in with this very distressing amount of emotion around maybe a coworker, mm -hmm. and if you're taking it literally, you might say something like, well. You know he's married and you're married so um you know maybe you just need to kind of stop thinking about him so much you know 
Whereas, um, you know, I might say something like, um, gee, these feelings are really important. I don't know what they mean, but they're really important. Mm -hmm. Let's keep talking about it. What, you know, what is he like? How do you, what are your fantasies about being together with him? You mm -hmm. know, in other words, in other words, to, to me, anything that someone walks in with is probably at least in part about something that needs to happen in the inner world. So someone walks in with a mad crush on a coworker that doesn't make any sense. And I'm wondering, what are they, what are they hungry for in the inner world? What are they not giving themselves? What are they mm -hmm. not making space for in their life? That's manifesting as this, you know, falling in love with this kind of inappropriate person. Yeah. Um, so, so to, to, to take it literally would be to say, well, gosh, I guess you, you need to divorce your husband and, you know, go have an affair with this guy. Yeah. dismissing it and just having it be nothing but would just say hey get over yourself you know you've got to buck up and just realize this is not going to happen the in-between space that i think eliza was pointing to earlier is wow this sounds really important well, i don't know what it means but let's keep talking about it and mm -hmm. let's see what wants to come forward through this it, it's a relationship to interiority or a relationship yes. with the self. And so uh, yeah. in Jungian psychology, Freudian psychology, they have a, a concept of the unconscious or, or like the anima. Like there's these different mm -hmm. kind of stories, uh, sim symbols uh, that direct it away from the physical body, um, from, from like a, a simple solution into a dialogue mm -hmm. with, with oneself or, or mm -hmm. a path of self-development. And so s symbolical thinking or sim the symbolic relationship is a relationship with oneself that yes, with one's soul, like there, there, there's only ever symbolic language for what's yeah, happening in this. That's right. That's right. It is okay. the invisible world. Okay. You know, that's mm -hmm. the thing is that ultimately mental health is about the invisible world. And we're not very good at navigating that. And if we apply the precepts of the physical world to the invisible world, we often get led astray. Mm -hmm. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. Yeah, and I think that, that question of what does it symbolize to you is getting at the, can we take this seriously but not necessarily literally? And mm -hmm. some of the areas where I think we see therapy running amok is taking the symbol literally as opposed to seriously or literally at the expense of seriously. Mm -hmm. yep. It's mm -hmm. like, okay, you're not literally born in the wrong body. That's not a thing, but what does it symbolize to you to have this identification? Like, does it symbolize, uh, you know, from, from studying these communities, it's often freedom or the ability to express sexuality in a safe, desirable way. Um, all of those kinds of things come up. Uh, to kind of loop back to Benjamin's question about, it seems like we are in these there keep being new ways for new social contagions, new ways to express this distress, and is that ever going to go away? Um, mm -hmm. I mean, my guess is that it's never going to go away because I think, you know, that transition is really difficult, I think. But it's certainly, there are a lot of ways to reduce 
distress. And and something that I thought was really interesting just from my research was um, there are so many things that we have kind of made a campaign of normalizing. And we were talking about some of those earlier, like, you know, we should normalize sex work, like destigmatize it. <laughs> One of the things that we have gone in the opposite direction on is rather than normalizing adolescence is really hard for everybody and it's really hard for girls in these specific ways mm -hmm. we have kind of moved in the opposite direction and pathologized these most basic experiences of growing up female and something that i notice on these communities across several different issues is you know girls will be posting there and they'll say things like you know i I felt like I was playing a part as a as a girl, or I felt like everybody hated their breasts and periods. And then they're like, but then I realized that actually everybody didn't feel that way. And it was just me. And it meant this very serious thing about me, like this very serious problem that I have to fix. Um, and these communities typically, like they will present some kind of solution to what is now felt to be an exceptional problem that you personally are experiencing that other people in your same kind of demographic are experiencing. And the thing that I think about, like um, Evan Elich says in his book, like the only suffering that is unbearable is suffering that you think is curable. Yeah. I I if you don't that. think that there's a cure for, yeah. you know, for, for puberty, like you have to go through it. You have to grow up, but now you don't have to grow up. Mm -hmm. Like we could block puberty forever. We could, that just completely changes kind of the psychic landscape that young people are dealing with when it's totally like does. these problems of development are all of a sudden taken to be well problems. yeah do you yeah and like do you relate to this stage of human development or not like do you see yourself going through the stage of human development or not that's a, just a totally different world wow. <laughs> that we're operating in imagine the hubris i mean it's it's just it's eternal human beings think that they can become gods and defeating puberty curing puberty it's so yeah it's so yeah, luciferian it's, it's so hubristic it's yeah insane. and it just makes it that more the painful adults, I think, that the adults are pushing this that's right because if you if you don't have a choice then you move into acceptance yes and you you find common ground with other people who may be struggling with it and you yeah. kind of take solace in that and you uh learn from that experience what you can i don't did you see um the wall street journal on sunday was um can we get rid of menopause i didn't see this mm -hmm. so that's the new frontier huh. i feel like probably that, not well, you know, but what if, but, but what if it's like tooth decay? Wouldn't we want to stop tooth decay? So if we could stop menopause, why wouldn't we? Women can stay young and fertile forever. Uh, that's, that sounds kind of dangerous. Like, do you, do you want to like, do, are they talking about just stopping the symptoms? Like the hot flashes, like the, the, the symptoms no, of the shutting no, down of that are just stop that thing from going mm -hmm. offline, the entire mm -hmm. endocrine system and female. Wow. Just keep it going that's... until like uh, your heart gives out, I guess. Right. I mean, it, I, I keep on finding myself thinking about that article because I was kind of like horrified, but also like their, their analogy of tooth decay. Like at what point, at what point do we think that every problem is every is is everything that results in decay and decrepitude a problem to be solved? Do yeah. we have to accept our human condition, or mm -hmm. 
you know, mm. or we're always pushing that boundary. I mean, it used to be like, yeah. oh, well, you got the bubonic plague, too bad, you know, but then it's like, oh, look, antibiotics. So, I mean, clearly, you know, it's it's good to fix mm. problems, but when does something, when is something a natural thing and when is it a problem? Yeah. And who decides Yeah, when that? is, when are you fixing something and when are you waging war on the human condition? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Somewhere. Somewhere. Um, <laughs> Yeah. Something so since we're talking about aging, I think I think this would be an interesting conversation because something that also comes up a lot is this fear of aging and like can you picture yourself as an older woman? Mm-hmm. And it's posed as this like gotcha question where like the answer is almost always in these communities gonna be, no, of course not. Mm-hmm. And then that this is a sign about, you know, what you should do with your life when you are a very young person. Um so- yeah. So they ask, they ask each other this, and these are people who are, these are young women who are deciding if they should transition. And one of the yes. questions is, it's, like, can, can you, you picture yourself? yourself as a woman aging mm-hmm. or as an old woman? Who <laughs> could? I know. But is it easier to picture themselves as an old man? Like, yeah, I'm going to be on the golf course with like a bad bladder, you know, and is, is that what they come up with? Sometimes they will say they can picture themselves they would rather picture themselves aging as an old man. But often, so often the answer is just, no, I can't picture myself aging as a woman. Therefore I should transition. And it's more this flight from being a woman than it is this like embrace of being a man. And I, I think that that aging piece, it's just, we need a better way to talk to girls about the future. And I think that there are a lot of issues where like, so feminism has this tendency to come in waves and to kind of self-cannibalize. And then mm-hmm. the the result is that, you know, younger women who are coming up think that the older women who won, you know, the freedoms and the perspectives that we take for granted, like that they don't have anything to say to us anymore and they don't understand what it's like to be us. And we're not going to be like them when we're older. And I, one of the things that for me personally has been really healing and really just one of the most unexpected best things that has come out of my involvement in kind of like Mm -hmm. the gender world is being connected to women across generations and having, you know, having a bunch of, you know, female role models who are a generation or two even, you know, ahead of me and being like, I totally want to be like her when I'm, you know, when I'm that age. Mm-hmm. which was something yeah. that I really didn't have until I was in my thirties mm-hmm. when I got involved in this. And at the same time, you know, you have that kind of relationship with these mentors who you admire and they, they can help you kind of navigate as you're growing up and as you are trying to figure out your life as an adult and they can protect you to a certain extent and also having a relationship with younger women. Mm-hmm. And being connected to younger women and being able to offer something to them like that has been i think one of the best things for me to come out of this yep yeah um have you read um hags by victoria smith yes yeah yeah Yeah. so good so good and she talks about that she talks about how um you know the, the certain kind of brand of feminism really kind of um scares younger women off from having anything to do with older women and just you know older women are yeah. kind of scary right because it's like uh 
you know, am I going to have to deal with that? <laughs> am I going to have to deal with, you know, the sags yeah. and the bags and the gray hair? And it's like, well, yeah, but, but I completely agree with you. I remember, um, you know, I've, I've always been lucky enough to have older friends. And when mm -hmm. I was younger, kind of realizing that, oh, I get it. So she, you know, she has younger friends and in a way that kind of helps keep her young. And now mm -hmm. that I am an older woman <laughs> and I do still have older friends, you know, I just had a conversation with, a, uh, you know, a woman I met through my involvement with this gender issue. I had a conversation with her this morning. She's 80 and we yeah. just had a nice chat over breakfast. And, uh, and at the same time, I, um, you know, have met all these younger women too. And I, and it is, I'm, I'm aware of that and I really treasure it mm -hmm. because, you know, it is really helpful having older, older friends. And you think, oh, that's what that part of life could look like. And yeah. oh, I need to remember to do this. And I love how she's doing that. And yeah. oh, that must be hard. Um, but, but also being in touch with younger people, um, especially younger women, you know, there's this wonderful sense of kind of giving something to the younger generation, but also, um, you know, being kind of kept abreast of things and feeling lively and open to new things yeah. that, that younger people tend to bring into my sphere. So that that is a really um, wonderful thing that doesn't happen often enough. Yeah. In culture. Yeah, it was. I really treasure it, too. And it was like, why did you know trying to figure out why did i never have this before mm -hmm. this and mm. and this interesting feeling of you know being someone who's semi-public um feeling at the same time maybe more exposed than i've ever been in my life to criticism and to you know risk to my social reputation my ability to earn an income those things like that and at the same time feeling more like kind of protected and kind of shored up by those relationships that I've ever mm -hmm. felt in my life. It's an interesting mm -hmm. place. Yeah, one of the things and um, Benjamin, I in no way mean to leave you out when I say this, but the the, the I don't know if you, what you want to call it the kind of I hate to call it the gender critical movement and that doesn't feel mm -hmm. right to me either. But it really is a women's movement. Most yeah. of the major players, not that there haven't been uh, men who played important roles, including our own Mr. Boyce. No, I'm, I'm gender positive. Always have been. <laughs> Always will be. But, um, but they're really, it's really been the women. And that's very inspiring to me. Yeah. yeah. Because w women care about children. Yeah, that's and women understand young women even if those young women don't want to be seen. Mm -hmm. I think yes. something that Victoria Smith said really well in Hags was she was talking about younger women mm -hmm. looking at older women and seeing, seeing where an older woman is in life as like a pure expression of choice rather than like this accumulation of things that you chose and didn't choose mm -hmm. and anticipated and didn't anticipate. And I think that mm -hmm. that was really insightful too because, you know, when you're younger, like younger than me, you'll be like, well, I would never be like that. And I would never make the choices and I would never make those compromises. And then life starts to happen to you. And you're like, yeah, I didn't choose a lot of this stuff. And it hasn't accumulated in the way that I would have expected. Yeah. Um, but something that I really wanted to uh, 
I really wanted Lisa to talk about was her work in like folktales. And I was thinking about this last night when I was thinking about our conversation that one of the books that I read when I was in my teens, and it's one of those books that I gave away. And then I think the person that I gave it to must've given it, the woman I gave it to must've given it to somebody else. Um, and now I haven't seen it since I was 17 or 18 was this book called Spinning Straw into Gold that was about kind of fairy tales connected to women's lives. And that this was a kind of a, and I don't know if I would look back on it now and be like, oh, it was really, yeah, I have no idea what I would think about it because I haven't seen it in 15 I have, I have years. that book. Yeah, but it was just such a book. Like it just completely changed the way that I felt about being a woman and mm. It put how things in a different it, dimension. And can you can you put your finger on how it changed or or why? I don't know. It was. I think it changed things in the way that only fiction can change things, where mm -hmm. you feel like you're not alone in an experience, and this is just like part of being human and always has been. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah. Which. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I, I feel like you're very kindly teeing me up to talk about my, my yes, books. I was. <laughs> so that's very sweet of you. Um, yeah, so my, my first book uh, is called Motherhood Facing and Finding Yourself. And I use fairy tales to explore the, the you know, basically the development of the mother. It's not really a parenting how-to book it's sort of like wow this is a really profound psychological transformation and mm -hmm. oh by the way women have been going through this since forever and there's some really great fairy tales that speak to that and of course as a Jungian we uh we Jungians we love our fairy tales and our myths because they they do communicate universal patterns so it's interesting mm -hmm. going back to our discussion about um puberty and and uh um menopause it's like is that a human universal i mean it always has been so far mm -hmm. and what we can do with human universals is kind of take strength and solace from experiencing them um and you know understanding that they're important rites of passage that kind of define us um so my new book that is called the vital spark reclaim your outlaw energies and find your feminine fire is it will be out on february 6th and uh it is it is a book about women claiming their uh, agency and authority and uh, i wasn't sure exactly what book i was writing until after i'd written it but i i think it does kind of touch on some of the things we've talked about today like um you know, this, this thing about um, young women feeling like they have to be kind, you know, and yeah. sort of take care of everyone else and uh, not, you know, sort of feeling like that's the feminine ideal. And if you don't fall within that, then, you know, then there's something wrong with you. When in fact, I think every woman has to kind of develop these other traits too, not just, mm -hmm. not just being, um, accommodating and uh and 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 kind and pleasant and uh you know easygoing and caretaking and nurturing but but fiery you know um uh aggressive and cunning and sure-footed and confident and all these other things so and there are some just incredible fairy tales about that but i i think 
Eliza, your point about universality is really, really key because that ultimately heals. Yeah. And that's why, you know, there's that Buddhist story about the mustard seed. Do you know the parable, the Buddhist parable of the mustard seed? So just really quickly, um, a woman loses her child and she goes to the Buddha and she says, I, I, you know, my, my child is dead. You have to bring him back. And he says to her, okay, I will, if you can bring me a handful of mustard seeds from a home that hasn't been touched by loss. So she starts knocking and eventually she comes back to the Buddha and she said, I couldn't find one. And what has changed is she, you know, she's still completely bereft over losing her son, but she understands now that loss is part of the human condition until we can make sure that everyone lives forever, which is perhaps on its way. But <laughs> until then, you know, this is part of our human condition and we can, and knowing that is healing. Yeah. The, the universality of it is part of what's healing. And I, I think that um, when we sort of atomize things and say like, you don't have to do this. If it doesn't mm -hmm. feel good, you don't have to do it. Or if it feels bad, then that must mean that you're some other kind of human. We rob people of that opportunity to experience the universality of their suffering. That is almost exactly what I just wrote down while you were talking, where it was like, we seem to be trying to heal through exceptionality rather than healing through like, yeah, yes, relatedness. That's, that's much, you put it in a much pithier way than I did. Um, so if you didn't know what the book was going to be until it was written, like, what did you start with? What um, I, I, I knew um well it was sort of like what's the overarching idea and i had this overarching idea of we, sort of we come back to ourselves but i don't think that's exactly right okay. because i i do think i do think that most women have to struggle with some of these qualities some some women don't have trouble with anger but a lot of us do um, some women don't have trouble with kind of feeling comfortable with their sexuality but a lot of us do and by the way, I would definitely say that, you know, men can struggle with these things too. It's just, mm -hmm. I didn't write that book, you know, but I, and I don't mean to imply that men can't have these struggles as well. Hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I would, I would hope that, um, I think there's I think there's medicine in my book for young women, maybe, maybe not adolescents, but young women, I think, for, mm -hmm. for sure. You know, there's a there's a story, an anecdote in the book about this um, acquaintance of mine who um, went to get a gap in her teeth filled and she sat on the chair and the dentist started drilling a totally healthy tooth. And she didn't want to say anything to him because she didn't want to make him uncomfortable. And uh, I think I think That's a lot terrifying. of us it's it's pretty extreme, but I think a lot of us can kind of relate to that, that we're so keyed into the other person that we have uh, we have trouble kind of finding finding ourselves. Yeah. What about your book, Eliza? Oh gosh, I can't really talk about that right now. But um, do you? Well, well, is it? Is it? May I ask? Do you know the book yeah. you're writing, or are you going to be surprised? I mean, I haven't written it yet, so maybe I don't. Okay. Yeah. Do, you have an idea? do you? Do you have a book proposal? I have a book proposal out mm -hmm. to see if anybody wants to bite. Um, 
That's yeah, we'll find out. Um, yeah, I was, so one of the things that I did during the pandemic, um, I was, I was home with my family and my brother and we were all under the same roof at the same time for the first time since we had been teenagers. And hmm. I bought this, the Italo Cavino book of folktales, the Italian folktales. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. And there are 200 of them. And I would read one of them to like my whole family every night. Oh my and gosh. it was just like when I think <laughs> there were lots of things about the pandemic that were, of course, even, you know, nobody in my immediate family got sick during the pandemic. Um, nobody lost a job. Like in a lot of ways, we were really insulated. Um, but it's hard to feel cut off from the world and it's hard to like not be able to make progress in your life in the way that you want to. Um, but I also, it feels like this kind of time out of time and, and like reading all of those fairy tales was definitely mm -hmm. part of it, feeling like this time outside of time. And I, you just have these brilliant tales that are like, they combine all of these things that in regular life, I at least tend to think about, you know, it's, it's very easy to think about them as being incompatible or that they can't coexist. Mm -hmm. And in fairy tales, all of these kinds of polarities coexist and so you'll have like this kind of cunning and purity and necessity and caprice and you'll have people performing these you know mysterious and very exacting rites that they don't understand but they have to be mm -hmm. performed perfectly or there will be this kind of unaccountable punishment um and i i found that it even like changed my dreams to be reading so many yeah, yeah. fairy tales at once yes. I, I bet it did. That they became more poetic and that it just gave me a lot of different ways. Like there was a story about maybe a couple of stories where sons are cut in half by their mothers who want to keep half of the child at home and let half of the mm -hmm. child go out in the world as they know that they need to do. And it just, I feel like it kind of, that time, that in a lot of ways, very quiet time remade my brain and then... Mm -hmm. Uh, when your book came out, I read your book and, and I loved the way that you used fairy tales. Like I loved the way that you used the, the tale about the Selkie, which I had always read very differently. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you read it as, I read it as a teenager and I remember thinking like, oh my God, like it's so terrible that he trapped her like on earth right. and she couldn't go back in the sea and she was always mourning for it. And you're like, well, the Selkie is, you know, it's kind of, it's a woman who is caught in between these two worlds, which means that she doesn't inhabit either one. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, but that was a really interesting yeah. way to think about it. It's really that's really lovely. I mean, these stories are most of them thousands of years old, and so they they there is something kind of essentially human in them. And by the way, most of the tellers of tales have been women. Mm -hmm. So I mean, these are you know this is part of oral history, but I I, yeah. I think it's also part of women's history. And, and there's a lot of yeah. insights about feminine psychology in fairy tales. I mean, male psychology too. There's some pretty brilliant fairy yeah. tales about male psychology, but there's a lot of good fairy tales about female psychology. Just yeah. I, I just watched uh, Song of the Sea. It's a animated retelling of an Irish fairy tale about a you know about a silky uh, this mm -hmm. spirit, this female spirit that comes and and you know becomes a mother, but then has to leave. And then the children and the father have to deal with her being gone. And there's a big adventure that happens with her daughter, you know, realizing that she herself, the daughter is, is in both worlds as well. Okay. I'm wondering, it's a brilliant uh, 
movie and the art direction is just fabulous. But um, mm-hmm. in the, in that story of the silky, this, this female that, you know, is on land, but belongs in the sea. What's the yeah. resolution of that? Because that, that, that there's a key insight about as a man dealing with women in my life, you know, it's like, <laughs> wait, you're, 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 you're a water creature and, but you're solid, you know, and, and navigating that, um, what's the resolution of that tension well, or, or different, if different resolutions sto- even yeah. the wrong different stories have different resolutions but i'll i'll bring up a slightly different story that has a, a resolution that i think also relates to exactly what we've been talking about and where we sort of started talking about um sort of why are adolescent girls more susceptible than boys and we were talking about how um girls are so kind of socially focused and there's also there may also just be something about the embodied reality of being female mm-hmm. that um the the body just becomes um you know our, our selfhood is so diffuse within our body that the body becomes uh sort of the the the, the page upon which our psychic life gets written more so than for men something mm-hmm. like that um, okay, going back to the Silky story. So here's a story from medieval France, and this one is in my next book. And um, so there's a knight out there who his name is Raymond, and he accidentally kills a friend. And he's sitting in the forest wondering what to do when he, this beautiful woman comes by. She's some, something a little uncanny about her, but she's beautiful. And she helps him to hide the body or, or you know, whatever it is that needs to happen. And then she says, well, you know, you can come back and live in my castle and be my husband, but... You have to leave me alone every Saturday. So he says, sure, yeah, that's a good deal. So he goes back and uh, he lives over there and they're very happy and they have all these, they have, I think like six sons or something. And the, their their children all grow up to be like accomplished warriors and scholars and, and but they're, they're all, they're, there's all, there's something a little um, different or strange about each one of them. Anyway, he, every Saturday she goes off, he doesn't know where she goes and it's fine until one day his brother visits. And then his brother's like, you know, people are talking about your wife, you know? Mm -hmm. So he rushes back to her apartments. They're all empty, but one door is closed and he peers through the keyhole keyhole and he sees her in the bath and the bottom half of her is a fish. So she's a mermaid. And, um, she, you know, he thinks, oh, no, I'm going to lose her, you know, now that I've looked, because that was the punishment. He's like, you'll lose me. But nothing happens for a little while until there's a crisis when one of his children kills another child. And he says to her, get away, you odious serpent. And she rec- mm. she knows that he has seen her and kind of identifies her otherness. Um, and then you know, she goes away and he never sees her again. But, you know, it's, it's, um, there is a way that I think all women and young women, and even maybe we begin to understand this when we're adolescents, we really do live in two worlds, much more so than men. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we need to kind of create room for that in some way, which I, which I think is in a fairy tale. And, and maybe the resolution is, <laughs> you know, men dealing with women, you've got to let, you've got to let women do that you know, whatever that means. But, but when we don't know that we're kind of living in two worlds, we can, we can get caught up and then we collapse that intermediary space of the symbolic space, or even just the Mm -hmm. feeling space. And we're, we're into that, that binary of uh, kind of the, the literal, that the literal offers us. 
Benjamin, you look like what I said didn't make much sense. No, no, it does. It makes a lot of sense. <laughs> I was just thinking there's this uh, internet video. It's very famous. You guys have probably seen it. It's called It's Not About the Nail. Oh, I love um, that. I love that. You haven't seen this video? You haven't oh, seen so it? You'll good. have to look you it up. You know, it's it. not about the nail. You'll have to look it up. Um, so I, I don't want to spoil it, but it's about a man and a woman trying to talk about a problem. And the man sees the problem and the woman feels the problem and the conversation is about the tension between the man solving the problem and the woman describing the problem yeah. and mm -hmm. just trying to think about that. But in like, it's not about the fish, like where this woman's a mermaid, you know, yeah. and, and they're yeah. trying to talk about just try, you, you brought up a lot, Lisa, with mm -hmm. just the women in my life and, and seeing, and even like, there's a, there's a sacred or secret aspect of beauty that women hold on to and the relationship, how, how beauty kind of comes on to them and turns them from this innocent child into a woman, you know, and, and then having to deal with the, the value of beauty, the social value of beauty or lacking the beauty and wrestling with mm -hmm. the beauty. And then they finally get a handle on beauty and then they have to let it go. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. like, oh, wait, my beauty's leaving, my beauty's leaving, you know, mm -hmm. and, and that whole arc of it being thrust upon you and then taken from you. And facing that uncontrollable, like, cycle of, of beauty emerging and then disappearing from you. Mm -hmm. And how there's almost no words for that. Um, we can talk about, like, seeing the beauty of age and stuff, or, or like, recognizing that there is like a different relationship to, to beauty. And when you're, when you're talking at least when you're talking about agency and authority, like there's a feminine agency, there's a feminine mm -hmm. authority that if, you know, in certain aspects of uh, feminism over the years, they've, they've tried to take the masculine for the feminine or try to like impose the, fem uh, like take the mantle of the male authority. And then you have this kind of weird hybrid Hillary Clinton-esque, like male female thing, which is, you know, which we see within gender, like this hybridity because they can't accept the, the, the very particular aspect, the very mysterious, dangerous aspect of the female. You're just bringing a lot up that I can't mm -hmm. really pin mm -hmm. down. Mm -hmm. um, but that, that otherness of, of the woman from mm -hmm. the point of view of the male yes, is the seat of beauty. It's where the yeah, beauty yeah. comes from and is, yeah. is held and, and the fear, fearfulness, the frightfulness of mm -hmm. the Yeah, that, the, that I think you put your finger on something there, the, the kind of the otherness, you know, that, I mean, it, you know, to, to, to women, I would say men feel pretty other, <laughs> you know, <laughs> But and and I'm sure that's feel pretty other to you. Yeah. 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 So, um, oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, you go ahead. Oh, I was gonna. <laughs> I was thinking about the strange rites and fairy tales that have to be observed, and the growing up rites, and then I was thinking. Because the Barbie movie has been all over the place. Um, and it reminded me of this like strange right that like my female friends and I did when we were 10 or 11 years old hmm. that I wrote about on Twitter the other day because it had just come back to me for the first time in a long time. And it was like, we were at a sleepover. It's that point where, you know, half of the class is hitting puberty and the other class is nowhere near it. Um, and we took, we're at this girl's house and we took her Barbies and we like 
seriously like tortured them, cut them with knives, chopped their hair off, like tried to burn them. Only the hair really burns, it turns out. You can just kind of like deform the rest. And then we buried them in the yard. And I, you know, I have no idea what we thought we were doing. Like, I don't remember talking about it. I don't remember how it started. And now it strikes me as this really interesting, like it's this very loaded symbol where it's kind of like half this childhood toy and half mm -hmm. this symbol of like adult female. Yep. Like huh. ideal of femininity, impossible ideal of femininity that we were mm -hmm. destroying at the same time that we're destroying a childhood toy. And just all of the, I don't know, I was, I don't know where this is going. I was just trying to like make sense of that very strange mm -hmm. night where we did all of these. Mm -hmm. What things. was the feeling? What was the feeling around it? I don't even like it felt transgressive. We definitely didn't want her parents to see that we were destroying these things. And I don't know if that's because like they bought the toys or because we were setting fires and we, you know, taken <laughs> the lighter. And um, so like on what level did we understand it to be transgressive? I don't know. And so it was felt paired. exciting. Yeah. But it was paired with like several other things that I remember very clearly from that night where there was a bar in the basement of this girl's house. And we didn't dare like drink from any of the bottles of alcohol, but one of the girls played like the male bartender and had this really low gruff voice. And we all had to go up and flirt with her like one at a time. And there was this kind of like weird practicing. And then the girl drug out the scale and weighed everybody, which is kind of horrifying. And then we played Bloody Mary for the last time where like you get locked in the bathroom one at a time in the dark with a candle in the mirror and you feel, and I remember very clearly when I was in there feeling this, like, I'm too old for this. Like, this is just a super superstition. And at the same time, having all of the hair on the back of my neck standing on end the whole time that I was in there, mm -hmm. that it was just like, I guess what that kind of represents to me is that in between space that pre-adolescents are in, where That's you are of... like half a child and half a grown up. Yeah. Yep. A liminal, a liminal space where. Yeah. Um, you know, things are somewhat monstrous in liminal spaces. They're, they're weird amalgams. They're neither this nor that. Yeah. And things where you know better and you don't. Yeah. And yeah. Mm -hmm. And just the way that kind of like, like other things that I remember from around, like I read Harry Potter and I remember, you know, that next summer, thinking like, well, obviously like it's fiction. And I remember telling myself like, you've got it in like the fiction section. Like you've got mm -hmm. it in the fiction section, it's not real. And at the same time, like thinking like, okay, maybe an owl will show up with a letter. Oh. You know, <laughs> where you're just kind of in this in-between space and where I just, I remember checking books all the time because I would read a lot of history and a lot of historical fiction and I would mix them up and I would look at the spines like repeatedly. Mm -hmm. It'd be like fiction, nonfiction. Mm -hmm. And it was just kind of how hard to hold on to that was. Hmm. But as 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 uh, as J.K. Rowling brilliantly says, and I think it's the last Harry Potter book, Harry says to to um, Dumbledore. Dumbledore is passed on, and Harry sees him in a kind of vision. Mm -hmm. This is going, and 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 he says something like, "Is this really happening, or or is it just in my head?" Yeah. And Dumbledore says, if it happens in your head, how do you know it's not real? Now, it's that's a par bad paraphrase, but it goes back to the same thing we've been talking about, about this intermediary space between what's yeah. real 
and what's in the internal world that that has its own reality its own subjective reality so yeah. you, so you're you're there i mean that, that's a, that's fascinating that you were checking the spines of your books because Repeat, you were, like compulsively mm -hmm, mm -hmm, because you knew somehow you know there's this um quote that um i don't even know who said anymore it gets attributed to different people but su supposedly a child said a fairy tale is a story that's oh, false on the outside and true on the inside but i think like it's robert bly uh yes i think i think that's one of the attributions i've seen of that and but it's great it's perfect and and yeah. it's like you knew somehow that your fiction books were true on the inside even if they were false on the outside <laughs> yeah you know so but as a culture are we're not so good at knowing what's whether it's true on the inside and false on the outside or <laughs> yeah, vice yeah, versa yeah. Yeah. Imagine feeling that you're false on the outside and true on the inside. Like your yeah. body is the false thing. Right. And, and yourself right. But, is but the everybody outside. feels that way to a certain extent. Yeah. Like, I mean, Lisa is talking about feeling that way just a little bit, you know, on the bus. Um, we're talking about adolescent girls. Like, I mean, don't you feel that way just in regular life? Like there are that the outside is this imperfect representation of what's inside. Mm hmm. And that people misread it all the time mm -hmm. and relate to these relate to you in ways that you don't relate to it like i think that this is mm -hmm. just the human experience and there are periods where it's particularly intense like when we yes. are in transition from yes. one stage of life to another stage of life hmm. and i think i think that there used to be a lot of rituals around i don't i don't know about rituals around menopause and I'm, I'm curious if lisa knows about that but i mean there were a lot of rituals around adolescence yes. and in some religious communities like judaism there still are but kind of in the broader society those have fallen apart and i feel like there's a way in which teenagers are trying to recreate those because they need Absolutely. those like because there's Absolutely. this form of recognition that comes with you know i'm changing like can't you see that like i'm turning into this different person like i need people to recognize that and not just see me as a child and not just see me as an adult well, I mean, yeah. so one of the things is I think your sleepover was a kind of um, ritual initiation that you guys concocted together. A little um, bit of a fucked up one, but yeah. yeah. It's the Barbie Oppenheimer crossover. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Talk about a liminal space. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, the other thing about rites of initiation, and you're right, there, there are, you know, in, in traditional cultures, there were rites of initiation, definitely for boys, but often for girls, too. Mm -hmm. And the, one of the things, you know, rituals of initiation always um, contain an element of death and rebirth. Mm -hmm. And so you are kind of reborn, and you can face adult life having done that, and you are a different person because you faced mm -hmm. death, you faced a ritual death. And it kind of prepares you, it fortifies you for the, the task of the next stage of life ahead. And, mm -hmm. and so I, and I do think it's, it's like we need as young, as young people going through a transition, we need the elders to lead us across the threshold. But we also need to have that experience of, um, you know, death. And, you mm -hmm. know, in, in, if you go to a really good, I, I mean, this is me, I'm, I'm a, I am so what do I know but you know I've been mm -hmm. to my fair share of bat and bar mitzvahs and um 
man, I've been to some good ones where, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, the kids have really had to stretch themselves to do what they do up there. You know, public speaking is one of those things that does um, terrify many people. And so standing up and, you know, reciting the Torah is, can, is it's pretty akin to a sort of death, you know, having to, to do that in front of the whole congregation. And, and uh, you know, so you finish it and you feel like a new person. You feel like you've survived the, the torment, the trial, you know. Yeah. Um, but there aren't that many places. And I, I do think it's interesting with these kids who want to transition. It has always, and I mean, I'm not the only person to make this uh, observation, but clearly it is a kind of death, right? There's yes, a dead name. you have name. a dead name. Yeah. And you're reborn as a new person and maybe you even you know get rid of all the old pictures of yourself and you go through yeah. actual trials like people are afraid of needles but they you know they get stuck anyway to get the testosterone yeah. or whatever or even surgery you know that's that's a real kind of self-sacrifice yeah hmm. yeah that seems like a, a pretty obvious attempt to recreate that kind of a ritual hmm. and hmm. Some, I, this is from, I'm still, I, I had COVID a couple of weeks ago and my brain is still a little bit like, I will think of something and then I'll forget it and then I'll remember it when it's not quite as mm. relevant anymore. But if it can drag us back, um, when we were talking about folktales, something that I was thinking about was this relationship between fantasy and real life or between imagination and real life. And, and there's something that Natalia Ginsburg writes about She's writing about, um, she calls it night talk. So the fantasies that she has when she's a kid, when she's a teenager in particular at night about where she kind of repairs all of the injuries of regular social life through her imagination where she's this, you know, important person. And if she's in a, you know, in a tight situation, it's, it's tragic and it's not comic because comic isn't, you know, it's really insulting, but tragic is really serious. And mm. that, there's a way that this kind of fantasy life that she indulges and which she thinks that she cannot live without at that time is kind of par a parasite on or kind of colonizing her real life and her real joys. And that as she has grown up, she has come to see like she would, I think she says the creative life is like the best thing that we have in the fantasy life is maybe the worst, but they're also inseparable. Mm -hmm. And And something from talking to a lot of people who have detransitioned and something that you know was definitely part of my experience kind of growing up and letting go of certain pathologies was <laughs> how do you have a healthy relationship with your imagination and how do you not use it as a place to escape from the world at the expense of your ability to live in the world mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah i talked to some um detransitioners who were you know, they, they talk about transition as an attempt to impose the fantasy life on the real world. And mm -hmm. then, and now, you know, some of those, two of those people, they were very similar conversations that I had. And one of them was like, okay, now they make this wonderful art. And the other one is like, and now they write these, you know, these fantasy novels. And they have found like a safe container for the imagination that they needed to like thrive. Mm-hmm. Well, in, in a way, I think that this is, again, it's sort of a, a similar theme about sort of like, is it what um, we, we need to guard against the mixing of the levels? Yeah. 
So what's kind of real world needs to stay in the real world and what's mm -hmm. fantasy needs to have its place and what's kind of symbolic and, uh, you know, uh, interior needs to have its place. And, you know, we can have a rich fantasy life, but if we go out and decide that, um, you know, we can fantasize that we're not, not going to stop at red lights, we, we won't last very long. Yeah. So, so it, it has to do with this idea of kind of mixing of the levels. And when, when we, I think, try, I mean, first of all, I, I am a big proponent of fantasy. And, you know, when I work with people, um, a lot of times I find that one problem that people have is they, they don't value their fantasy life enough okay. because our fantasy life often tells us what we want or what's missing. So if you catch yourself fantasizing about something, it's probably the thing that you need in your life that you don't have. So that's just good information, you know, and it's fun and it's relaxing and, and that kind of thing too, but it can be really, really useful. You know, you, you find yourself fantasizing about um, curling up with a book alone, you know, or, yeah. you know, being in Aruba or, you know, whatever it is, or dancing. It's like, huh, I guess I need more of that in my life, yeah. whatever that is. Um, but it can also, it also really does often sort of reflect our deepest desires as well. So it can be a little bit of a compass. Um, but obviously it can also become pathological. And I think that's what mm -hmm. you're talking about. And, and then it's again, where you're trying to take something out of the world of fantasy kind of inappropriately, you know, impose that version on reality, like my my stoplight um, uh, example. I mean, it, it's one thing to find yourself, you know, fantasizing about uh, going dancing all the time and then deciding, yeah. like, hey, I think I'll take a dance class. You know, that's like an appropriate way to move it into to actual reality. It's like, what's the yeah. what's the fantasy version? And then there has to be what Freud called a, a compromise with reality. You know? Yeah. And, um, and I, oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, this is making me think of, you're talking about the girls who maybe haven't left their apartment and mm -hmm. who are subsisting on, in a state of social deprivation that they may or may not recognize. And it's kind of like, okay, this seems like a situation when you're trying to get out of fantasy, something that can only come out of reality. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of like the, the wire mother in those Harlow's monkey, yeah. Harlow monkey examples you know yes i think that's i think that's exactly right and fantasies can also become defensive and they often are and that's when they're a problem too so that instead of facing real life you're you're escaping mm -hmm. into fantasy and some people come in and say well i have these fantasies but i'm worried i'm escaping into fantasy and i'm like well tell you know it's like i think sometimes you can think you're escaping into fantasy when mm. when actually that fantasy is really valuable and, and life-giving okay um but um actually you know what i'm gonna look while you guys talk i'm gonna find this great marie louise von franz quote about fantasy so okay she's okay. always got to bring a quote i love this she loves them yeah no me too i'm a total magpie with those huh. i mean i was thinking last night i was kind of paging through different books where i was like what are some things that i would love to talk to lisa about and they were mostly quotes and it was like Marie, Marie Louise von Franz and like Ursula Le Guin and Deborah Levy and Ann Carson and Marina Warner and all of these, um, all of these women where it was like, oh, they're really getting at something like Deborah Levy is talking about like, 
anything that's covered is interesting and there's never mm. nothing under something that's covered is like maybe kind of the psychoanalytic approach in a nutshell. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's great. I love that. Everything is covered and there's never not something under that which is covered. That's brilliant. That's really great. Okay, here's <clears throat> here's Marie Louise von Franz on fantasy. The great difficulty is to save the fantasy which is life giving and cut away the childishness of the wish to realize it. Can you repeat that? Mm -hmm. The great difficulty is to save the fantasy which is life giving and cut away the childishness of the wish to realize it. Huh. Which I mean, if if you even if you would take into account, like, for example, a, a young girl's desire to transition or her fantasy that she is a man, mm -hmm. that is life-giving. The wish to realize it, to make it concrete, yeah. is, is what's problematic. The fantasy uh. itself, and I'm not trying to be disparaging by calling that a fantasy, but that desire itself is life-giving. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, well, Lisa, in your upcoming book about agency and authority i was thinking about well in order to realize that in a good way you have to have dealt with your imagination and you have to have dealt with reality um, mm -hmm. in order for your agency and your authority to have a beneficial impact yeah one thing you didn't mention along with being accommodating and, and finding your agency and finding your authority is this concept that for me is really important or has been really important in my life called ambition. Like, like, mm -hmm. so, so I just want to wrestle mm -hmm. with the quote that you just said It's like the ambition is life giving. And if I don't fulfill that, then I don't become a man. Right. I don't, I, I never let go of the child. If I just keep that fantasy in the realm of fantasy and I don't uh, take the fantasy and then, and take reality and see where they line up and then see what I can mm -hmm. do. And even demanding the impossible from myself, setting myself an impossible goal, um, I, I have to understand, um, or I've had to like my greatest, you know, vectors of maturity is, is in dealing with reality and dealing with fantasy and then finding myself somewhere and be mm -hmm. finding myself somewhere in like forcing reality to evolve or innovate on the past and, 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 you know, and then forcing my, my ambition and my fantasy to compromise and then, and then finding mm -hmm. where those two meet is where my mm -hmm. adulthood, my manhood yeah. Yeah. is proven. Well, I mean, I guess I, I, I would sort of say something like, I think ambition often grows out of fantasy. So you might have a fantasy of, um, I don't know, being like, I don't know, like a fantasy of surfing, for example, you know, <laughs> like that would be really fun. But it's just a fantasy. And then if it if it builds more heat, you might be like, you know, I think I really want to learn how to surf. Mm -hmm. And so that that then is an ambition, like something that you're going to operationalize. And and then, mm. yes, you do. And then then you start acting on reality, like, okay, well, the first issue is I'm not a very strong swimmer. So I think I probably have to, you know, become a stronger yeah. swimmer before I can surf, you know, and then okay, so, you know, that's, Mm -hmm. You know, and, 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 or maybe you say, well, you know, I'm not a strong swimmer and I'm probably not going to get to be a strong swimmer. So maybe I can't surf, but maybe I can, I don't know, you know, water ski or something, you know, it's like you, you might have to mm -hmm. adjust your, your vision mm -hmm. based on reality. You might have to adjust the ambition, but it does start. Like, I think most of the things that we end up doing in life, or at least the things that we end up doing because we want to do them had their germ in a fantasy. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. I guess, yeah, it's, am I tilting at windmills or am I actualizing my, well, my potential, right? Mm-hmm. Like being able to tell that. And I guess you just have to, at some point you just have to roll the dice and say, I don't know if becoming a woman is possible for me or not, or becoming a man mm-hmm. is possible for me for that. And the, the importance of what you're bringing to the table, Lisa, about the symbolical thinking is like, maybe, maybe dreaming about being a man for, for a young girl that maybe that's false. Maybe that's a fantasy, mm-hmm. but there's something that is really life giving about behind why you want that. Why do you want that? Right. right. So what, what, like, what is that saying? What, like, you know, one way of thinking about it, maybe like, so what would, what would that mean? Like what would being, being a man, what would that give you that you don't have now? So what's the essence of it that's, that you're reaching for? Mm-hmm. And, um, and what's the best way to get that? You know, once we bring reality into the picture, mm-hmm. you know, cause you can't actually change your sex. Mm-hmm. So, does it does it make can, is there another way to get this that doesn't have quite as high a cost if if what you're if if what excites you about being a man is that sense of authority or that people will listen to you or that um you mm-hmm. you will feel strong are there other other ways to get that you know so so yeah so the the, the fantasy as it were is the desire in some sense is life-giving you know desire is so life-giving yeah. I think we should land the plane now. I have another episode okay. to get through. Um, Eliza, I, but I wanted, you were percolating there. So I want whatever was percolating Oh, it to, was just, to manifest. I was thinking about what Lisa was saying and about how you let go of the how do you build a healthy relationship with imagination and how do you build a healthy relationship with fantasy and i was just thinking to myself about like okay the the kind of late teens early 20s approach that i took to that which was that i had been very steeped in kind of fantasy worlds like i wrote harry potter fan fiction for a long time (laughs) Mm -hmm. and for like i would unfortunately it's still on the internet because other people archive these things and so for five hundred dollars i would reveal it but but no less um wow wait wait wait, we need to start a gofund yeah (laughs) (laughs) my teenage harry potter fan fiction but um i remember the point where i realized that like i had a problematic relationship with fantasy when i was about 2021 okay that it was at the expense of my regular life that it was expense of my kind of growth as a person and mm-hmm. I had been writing the fan fiction and I had been writing this novel and that I took this really draconian and now see it strikes me as kind of a hilariously severe approach to fixing the problem which didn't actually fix the problem which was that I you know went completely cold turkey and like I deleted the novel and I destroyed the CDs that I had like oh backed God. it up on oh my God. and I was like okay now I'm going to be a really serious person and I'm going to focus on you know my real interest, like that's in the real world that really matters, which was being really interested. Like I wanted to work for the office of like war crimes investigation. I wanted to do research Mm -hmm. on like the Holocaust and totalitarianism. And it was Mm -hmm. like, I thought that you couldn't be that kind of a serious person and have a fantasy life or that I couldn't be a serious person and have a fantasy life because I had had this problematic relationship with fantasy. And it has really taken me into my thirties to Mm -hmm. find a place where those could be reintegrated 
And it's just a completely transformative, like reintegrating those things has been transformative the yeah. way that I like think and, and write. And mm -hmm. that's what I was thinking about. <laughs> well, we need our fantasy and our imagination to understand such things. Yeah. As the Holocaust and totalitarianism. Huh. Yeah. Or any other thing. Any other thing. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. I was. Yeah, it was lovely to talk to you both. Yeah. Very much appreciate both of your work and both of your presence. Thank you very much for interacting and letting me be the coughing, sneezing, hacking third <laughs> wheel here. That I sneezed and I had to leave, and you guys just took over. I shouldn't even come back. I oh, just that, let... was, that was why you left. Okay. I should have just let you guys I was just take over. I was like, mm, I didn't need to, be to here. get a cup of coffee. Yeah. <laughs> he was like, my podcast has come so far that I no longer need to be here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm purely implied. So thank you very much. That's and I'll great. link uh, I'll link to you both of your works in the description, but why don't you guys plug it right now, what's going on, where people can okay. read you and, and uh, connect with you. Eliza, you go first. Okay. Um, I write on Substack at Eliza Montgrain at Substack.com and, and everything that I do ends up there somehow. And I have a podcast called This Union Life and you can find it at thisunionlife.com and I have a uh, an author website at lisamarciano.com. Right now you just can find my book Motherhood there, but pretty soon I will add a page for my new book, which comes out in February. And her podcast lie. is fantastic. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Great. Thank you, ladies. All right. Thank you so Bye -bye. much. Bye. Have a good day.